Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. I am the teaching pastor here at Calvary Baptist Church in Phillipsburg, Kansas. We are located about 30 minutes south of the Nebraska-Kansas line in north central Kansas. And we are grateful that you and your family have joined us in our preaching and teaching ministry. This morning we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we are going to read and then examine verses 1 through 27. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. The scripture says, There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zawar, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim. But they were not there. Then they passed to the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and becomes anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophets were formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. 
Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guest. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. That's a lot. So let's examine what the scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 9. I I believe that if we take an honest assessment of Saul's life, we would find him to be a villain. He's an extremely fall, a flawed figure, and he's insane. Near the end of his reign as king, as we continue through our study, Saul goes literally insane. God gives an evil spirit to him, and and this evil spirit harasses him day and night. Eventually, because Saul is is so crazy, he's, he's, he's so far gone from the will of God that he pursues witchcraft. He literally goes to a woman who claims to be a witch and asks her to speak to the dead. That's Saul. He begins in our text here as a naive farm boy. But he, at the end of our text, he is a reluctant king. And we find next chapter how he even tries to hide from being anointed king. And eventually he ends up a madman. That's all. He is one of my least favorite people in redemptive history. Um, And you'll see why as you read through and, and you take part in this study with us here at Calvary and we examine Saul's life He is an extremely flawed figure who I don't believe, along with the many other kings of Israel, that he was not a Christian. He was not a true believer. Um, 
And like I said, many other kings were not. In fact, only a few were. Of course, David being one of them. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king. The elders of Israel uh, give two reasons for their demand. One, Samuel's sons are corrupted. They pervert justice and Israel don't want them to lead over him. And Samuel's getting old, he's going to die and they do not want the leadership to be passed on to his sons. And secondly, Israel wants a king because, as they state twice in chapter 8, our neighbors have a king. The nations around us have a king, and we, we want to be like them. At first, Samuel's offended by this, but the Lord tells him, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And the Lord acquiesces to Israel's demands, and he appoints Samuel to find a king for Israel. Although Samuel tells him, this king is not going to be a blessing to you. He, he is going to be a curse. He is going to take your sons. He is going to take your daughters. They're going to serve him. He's going to take your land. He's going to take a portion of your crops. Every year, Israel, nah, we don't care. We'll still take the king. So Samuel agrees to appoint a king over Israel. He just doesn't know who it's going to be yet. And, and we don't know up to this point, like if this is the first time you're reading 1 Samuel, you don't know yet. When God told in chapter 8, Samuel, that to appoint a king, we don't know who he's going to pick. And we also don't know how long it took Samuel to find Saul, how long it took God to raise up Saul. That's, it's not told to us. So going into chapter 9, there's a lot of questions. And some of these questions don't get answered. Verse 1 begins with an introduction to Kish. He is a, a man, a descendant of Benjamin. He's a man of wealth. Uh, typically, when the Bible gives a long genealogy of a person, it, it's, it signifies uh, that family's power, their significance. We know from the book of Genesis that Benjamin was Jacob's youngest of the 12 sons that he had. Before he died, Jacob blessed Benjamin. Uh, he predicted that Benjamin would be a ravenous wolf. They would devour the prey in the morning, but in the evening, they would then divide the spoil. So they would be a, a small clan, but a clan that had the ability to fight. So when, when Saul later says, you know, who am I of the tribe of Benjamin? It's, it's not like the clan of Benjamin were weak. Saul just didn't want to serve. He just didn't want to be king. And so he offered up pointless excuses. There are some prominent men in Scripture that come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, some of them are beloved. Some of them, like Saul, are notorious. Ehud, Israel's second judge, was from the tribe of Benjamin. In Judges chapter 3, 
The Lord appoints him and he saves Israel from the Moabites. Mordecai, uh, the father figure to Queen Esther, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. According to Romans chapters 11 and Philippians chapters 3, the Apostle Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So being a small tribe uh, and not very prominent in numbers, Benjamin does produce some very prominent men from their descendants. In verse 2, we are introduced to Saul. Uh, This is Kish's son. The scripture says he was handsome. He was a young man. He was taller than most of the people of Israel. Um, He was well fixed, well put together. He was good looking. The most interesting thing about Saul is his name. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel asked for a king. Saul's name in Hebrew means asked of God. It's true. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Israel asked for a king. Saul's name in Hebrew means asked of God. What's the big deal about the scripture describing Saul's physical stature. What's the big deal about the scripture describing Saul's physical looks? Well, it's no secret that the world, worldly people, desire attractive people. It's a quality, right? Attractiveness is an equality that pagans desire. But the scripture warns the church not to Uh, be swayed by outward appearance, not to judge according to outward appearance. In James chapter 2, he uh, brings up a scenario of two men. One is rich, he dresses nice, he walks into the church. You got another man, he's poor, he doesn't dress so nice, he walks into the church, and the church pays closer attention to the rich man, and they accept him, and, and they give him the place of honor. Whereas the poor man's disregarded by the church. And James says, when you act that way, when you judge according to the outward appearance, you're acting according to the flesh. It's a sinful response. We are, we are not to show partiality. We are not to show partiality. James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Yeah, he has. Saul came from a wealthy family, a very powerful family. He was honored by his father. The people, when he would walk by, they they looked at him and they noticed Saul. I mean, he certainly looked the part of a a strapping man in, in every outward way. But that inner man, weak, coward, unbeliever, unfaithful, insane, he was Israel's choice, but he was not the guy. He would be called a jag, just another guy, when it came to serving 
a prominent position inside the kingdom of God. We are told that Samuel first encountered Saul because of an incident involving Kish's donkeys. Uh, Saul's dad notices the valuable donkeys are missing. He sends his son Saul along with a servant to look for them. At first, the two men search for the missing donkeys in Ephraim, uh, which would be north of where Saul lived. They keep going further, further away from his home, and they end up in the city of Zuf. And still, the donkeys cannot be found. Now that they have been gone for a considerable amount of time, Saul is worried that his father would no longer be worried about their donkeys, but he would be worried about his son. And so Saul suggests that they head home. But the servant says, let's, let's try one final thing. There's, there's a prophet that I know, a man of God in this city. And he is honorable and he won't lie to us. He will tell us exactly where the donkeys are. So let's go and see him. So Saul, who was ready to call off the search, agrees that they should go find the local prophet. Scripture does give us two small pieces of information that we shouldn't neglect. At first, in verse number nine, the scripture says that the Lord's prophets in those times were also known as seers. The term seer describes a person who has the ability to communicate with God. The seer is known to be able to speak to God and also God speaks to that seer directly to him. So the servant is convinced that the local seer could help them find the donkeys because God will just give him the answer. The second thing that we shouldn't overlook is the cost of getting the information. Saul initially objects because they don't have any money. They don't have any bread. But the servant says, I have with me in verse 8 a shekel of silver and I will give it to him. Whenever a prophet was consulted, it was common courtesy to bring him a gift. I mean, the man can deal directly with God. And he should be compensated for that work. Not only did prophets receive money because they could speak to God, but they also were paid to not speak to God. They were, they were try, people tried to pay them not to because they knew that God would tell the seer something bad against them. And so they're like, here, here's money, just go away. Don't, don't speak to God. In Amos chapter seven, King Amaziah tells the prophet to just, just go away. Here, here's bread for your church, just go away. Don't prophesy again here. Eventually, the practice of paying the prophets was abused. Go figure, right? Jeremiah chapter six, verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-five: 25. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. This practice was abused by Israel. Do, do you know who else abused 
the practice of intercession, the Roman Catholic Church. One of the causes, one of the causes of the Protestant Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church's sinful practice of indulgences. Beginning in the 11th century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church's clergymen, they would receive money and gifts from the church members to persuade them to erase the punishment for their sins. So if a church member committed a sin, he would go to the priest or he would go to the bishop, he would give them money, and the bishop claimed that if the price was right, the bishop could absolve their sins, including the punishment of them. That's exactly what Israel tried to do by abusing the practice. The prophets of Israel, the corrupted prophets, I should say. Anyway, at one point, giving the Lord's prophet's gift was a righteous and honorable practice. At one point, before it was abused, it was a good thing to give gifts to the man who could intercede for you, who taught you the word of God, who revealed to you the word of God. And we see this principle in the New Testament and even today. The scripture says, let the elders who rule will well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It was a law that while the oxen would, would tread the grain, that he would be allowed to eat at the same time he worked. And Paul takes that commandment and applies it to the ministers of the gospel, that while we work in, in delivering the word of God and shepherding the flock, that we should get paid for it as well. Paul says to Timothy, the laborer deserves his wages. Galatians 6.6, 6, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So the old covenant practice of, of giving gifts and wages to the prophets because the prophets would deliver to them the word of God we see that, pro that practice in the New Testament. When the Lord sets up for the men that he calls as his ministers to be paid to receive a wage for their work. As Saul and his servant went looking for Samuel, they encounter a group of young women who are drawing water. They ask the women where the seer is, and the women tell them. According to the women, Samuel happens to be in their town today because of a sacrifice. At that time in Israel, it was popular for sanctuaries and for houses to be built on top of hills. And the springs and the wells were at the bottom. And so daily, uh, the young women who were responsible for collecting the water would have to make that trip from top of the hill to the bottom of the hill every day to collect water. Like I said, the high places were also built on the hilltops. They were 
originally built by pagans. And that's true. In Numbers chapter 33, when Israel was about to enter the promised land, the Lord told her to tear down the high places of the Canaanites. Don't leave them up. Tear them down. And if Israel built any of the high places, God said he would punish them. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 30. But Israel did build the high places. And God, true to his word, he punished Israel. But they refused to tear them down. If you read First and Second Kings, the kings of Israel loved their high places. Jeroboam loved his high places. In fact, as you read First and Second Kings, it will a common phrase is the king followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, because Jeroboam was the first king of Israel to officially build high places. He built many of them. And his successors built high places. And the Lord hated it. He hated the practice. So what do we make of Samuel building the high places? Well, to answer this question, we have to be honest. Samuel was a very flawed man. He was a sinner. And we, as people who recognize Samuel as a very flawed man, we are careful not to repeat his sins. David, the prophets, Abraham, Moses, their sins are recorded for us so that we would not repeat them. They're written down for us. They're written down as an example for us. But do you know what's often missing from the Old Testament when concerning these leaders of Israel, correction. The ability to accept correction. Remember when Abraham gave his wife over to Abimelech, he lied and said Sarah was his sister. Sarah tried to correct him. He didn't accept it. King Solomon didn't receive the correction from his elders. Instead, he took the advice of the young men. Being able to Receive correction is necessary for the Christian faith. It's necessary. If you want to remain faithful to the Lord, you must be able to accept correction. Facts. What is, what is your typical response to correction? Right? The typical response is we become defensive. We're indifferent. Well, you know... Look at his sins, you know? What about that guy over there? You, why, why are you coming after me? Yeah, or the common response, you can't judge me. That's our typical response to correction when someone corrects us, especially adults, when we're corrected. And that's not a response of a mature man or a mature woman in the faith. It's a child's response. Parents, how accepting of correction are your children? Right? They don't like to be corrected. They don't like to be told no. They don't like to be told they can't do something. They don't like to be rebuked. A Christian who cannot accept correction is, is like a child. An adult in the Christian faith who acts like a child. Listen to me. If you are an adult in the faith, and you act like a child, 
you will soon depart from the faith. You will. You will give it up. You will fall. You will begin that slide backwards and you'll slip right out of that church pew. Right into that parking lot, right into that car, back to your home and you won't go. We are commanded in scripture. We are instructed to grow, to mature in the faith. It's not, it's not acceptable for an adult Christian to remain an infant in the faith. That's actually a bad thing. And we grow, one of the ways that we grow, one of the ways that we mature in the Christian faith is by accepting correction. Correction keeps us from sinning. It keeps us from persisting in sin. Correction helps our sanctification. So be men and women who are able and willing to embrace correction. As Saul and his servants, as Saul and his servant, sorry, there's only one of them, uh, went towards the location that the young women provided for them, Samuel's actually on the way to see them. And we're told that the Lord, the previous day, said to Samuel that this day, about this time, he's going to find a man from the land of Benjamin. And you're going to anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And it's going to be this man that saves the people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. That's sarcasm for the Lord. He's going to look at Saul and see nothing but outward and, 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 and not have anything in him. Because remember, chapter 8, the Lord said he's not going to answer the people. Right? He, he hears their cry for a king. He's not going to hear their cry to help rescue them from this king. This is the guy that's going to save Israel? Hardly. And Saul did win some of his battles. But it, he was not the king that the Israelites thought they were getting. Saul and his army were cowards when it came to fighting Goliath, when it came to fighting the Philistines. Saul dies in battle by falling on his own sword. Even Saul acknowledges that he's not the man for the job. He says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? When, when we feel that the Lord is calling us to his service, there should be a degree of humility, right? We should know that without the Lord's help, we would be unable to fulfill God's will for our lives. Like we, we must acknowledge, like, Lord, I'll, I'm willing to do it, but I need your strength. Lord, I'm willing to serve you because that's what you command me to do and I want to do what you command me to do, but I'm going to need your strength. I'm going to need your help in doing what you called me to do. Right? We should have a degree of humility, but refusing to serve 
denying what God has called us to do, that's just sin. That displeases the Lord. When you refuse to do the work of the Lord, you're rejecting him. You're rejecting him. Humility, yes, humility pleases the Lord. And the Lord is willing to help those who are humble. But refusing to do the work, well, that's, that's pride. That's arrogance. And that never, never pleases the Lord. We may think this is harmless. When you read 1 Samuel, like, oh, come on, Pastor Stephen. Why are you so hard on Saul right there? Come on. This is not harmless. This, this is not acceptable. We are obligated to obey the Lord. I don't want you walking away from this sermon thinking, ah, you know, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. If the Lord calls you to do something, if he, if he impresses that upon your heart, if he's giving you the gifts and the talents to do it, you have to do it. Are you worthy? No. Will you need God's help and strength? Of course. But be willing to do it. Even the things that seem uncomfortable, we do it. We do it for the Lord. We do it for the Lord's glory. We don't do it for our recognition. We do it for the Lord's glory. There are about 30 people waiting for Samuel and Saul in this hall. Saul sits at the head of the table. The best portion of the food is given to him. Uh, Samuel reassures Saul that this, this is all the Lord's doing. The specific portion that's given to Saul was the same that was served for the priest, it was the leg, the whole leg, the thigh, the knee, the foot, everything of the animal. He's entitled to special privileges. He's the Lord's anointed now. Later, when David has many opportunities to kill Saul, David always says, Saul is the Lord's anointed for the reason why he didn't kill him. David says, I, I had you, man. I could have easily killed you, but you are the Lord's anointed. And I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. There's special privilege with that. After the dinner, Saul saves the night. The next day, before he leaves, uh, Samuel tells the servant to go on ahead because Samuel has a word for Saul from the Lord. In chapter 10, is the story of what Samuel does next. Whether we like it or not, and I'm telling you right now, I don't like it at all. Saul is now the Lord's anointed. I'm sure you probably heard it said before that the title that Jesus is most often called in the New Testament is the Christ. Right? He's called the Christ the most often. That's the title that is reserved explicitly for him. The Greek word Christos, it means anointed one. The Hebrew word Mashiach, we get the word Messiah from, means anointed one, the same word, same meaning. 
So when we call Jesus the Christ or when Jesus is called the Messiah, we are calling him God's anointed one. And the concept of the anointed one is, is begin, begins right here under the Old Covenant. God promised Israel a savior. He promised to send one. And he would, God will have his special favor on this one. And this anointed one, this Messiah, would come in the name of the Lord. He would be anointed with the power of God. And he would be able to deliver God's people from their enemies. And we're talking about sin. He would deliver them from defeat and battle. He would deliver them from error, from, from going down a false path. He would deliver them from false worship. Therefore, under the old covenant, those who occupied the offices of priest, prophet, and king were anointed. The priests were anointed because the Lord saved his people from their sins through the intercession of the priest. The prophets, they preached the word of God. They, they saved Israel from error. So they were anointed. The kings, they, they protected God's people from enemies. So they were anointed. In a typological sense, the priests, prophets, and kings of the Old Covenant, when they were anointed by God, they were a foreshadow of Christ. They were foreshadowing the greater Messiah, the greater anointing one. They were a symbol, a type of Christ. But this became an obstacle for Israel because instead of looking past King Saul, and seeing a greater king, instead of looking past the prophet Samuel and seeing a greater king, or looking past Aaron, the high priest, and looking for a greater priest, they held on to them. They embraced them instead of looking past them to Christ. Saul, sinful and flawed. Samuel, sinful and flawed. Aaron, sinful and flawed. But instead of looking past these symbols and placing their hope in the greater high priest and the greater prophet, the greater king who was to come, they were ignorant. Much like the unbelievers in the New Testament and much like unbelievers today. Because there is sufficient evidence that's given For us to know that God's true Messiah would surpass Samuel, Saul, David, Moses, like a greater Moses was coming. There's enough evidence to believe in the greater Messiah that's to come. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He said, there was enough overwhelming evidence that Jesus possessed an anointing from God that's far surpassed that which had rest on any other man. There's enough evidence. People of the New Testament, Jesus asked them, who do you say the Son of Man is? Which is another word for the Messiah. Who do you say the Christ is? The, the apostles, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They, they called Jesus the old covenant anointed Son of God. 
Remember Nathaniel when he first met Jesus? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? When he met Jesus, he called him, you are the son of the God, the king of Israel. He called Jesus the king of Israel because he had enough evidence to believe it. The unbelievers of the New Testament age, they, they said, Jesus, ah, oh, he's just some prophet like Jeremiah. He's just some prophet like John the Baptist. So they had an understanding of the prophets and how the prophet can be something special and have some anointing, but they rejected the evidence that Jesus was a greater Jeremiah. As we continue to examine Saul's life, and eventually we'll get to David, we need to remember that these men were severely flawed. And they were ultimately unable to bring complete and total freedom to the people of God. Yeah, David won his battles, but he ultimately lost. He died, he was buried, and he was replaced. And each king after him suffered the same fate, except for one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The same is said of the prophets, severely flawed men. And although they revealed God's word to the people, that word they revealed was not complete and it wasn't total. But Jesus is. Jesus is so much of a greater prophet his word is a greater word that he doesn't just merely reveal the word of God to us. He is that word. Which prophet can make that claim? Can Isaiah claim that he is the word of God? No. And the same applies to the priest. Their priesthoods were not perpetual. Eventually they died. They were replaced. The intercession that they provided for the people of God, that wasn't complete. That wasn't total. But Jesus is. According to Jesus, Jesus' priesthood is forever. He sits daily right now for all time at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. What priest can make that claim? What other priest can make that claim? None of them. That's what I want you to know from the book of Samuel. From Samuel's life, from Saul's life, from David's life, Jesus surpasses all of these men because the anointing that he received from his father was greater than the anointing that those men received from God. Your attention shouldn't be on Saul. It shouldn't be on Samuel. You have to move past them and see the one who would come that they foreshadowed, the greater king, the greater priest, the greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this warning. If you can't understand that, if you can't look past Samuel and see Christ, if you can't look past Saul and look past David and see and embrace Christ, you're no better off than the men of the New Testament who did the same thing. You will suffer the same fate. 
You have to get past the symbol. You have to get past the type and embrace the reality who is Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the great prophet, greater than Moses, and the king of Israel, the true king of Israel.